Paul's going to be talking to us about the wisdom of God this morning. I think wisdom's kind of an interesting thing. When we think about the things of God, uh, I think things come to mind before wisdom does. I think things like power and love uh, come uh, to our minds pretty quickly. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not you at all. Uh, but I think those things come to our mind sometimes before wisdom. Oftentimes we ask for wisdom because we, we want data or knowledge that we can do things we want to with. That's often uh, when we turn to the Lord for wisdom. Uh, but there is a reality to God's wisdom, and it is that it is there. It is the wisdom of God as it is in God, and he's imparted it to us through his word such that we can go to it and see and know the wisdom and the will of God. We can access it. And then if we would adopt it as our own, we would be living in wisdom. And that's kind of what Paul is doing this morning. That's kind of where he's taking us. You know, Paul's hammering, hammering, hammering in the letter to the Ephesians on our new identity in Christ. Identity in our world is huge. It's huge. It's really the central thing in which everybody orients themselves and lives. However they identify themselves is something that you cannot push back against or try to help with. Their identity, whatever it is, whatever they've chosen that to be, and it doesn't have to match reality, it's simply what they've chosen in their minds is their world. That's how big reality is. That's how big identity is. And Paul says that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a new identity and we all have the same one identity. It's Christ. We are in Christ. And so Paul's been going about the mission, the work of hammering us out on an anvil to walk out our new identity in Christ in our very real, present, daily lives. So that what's been placed in us by the work of Christ on the cross and through the power of his spirit that indwells us is that our identity in Christ needs to come out of us in real living in Christ. And so Paul's been telling us that we're to walk in the love of God as children of God our Father. Because that's how Jesus, his son, walked out love. And so that's how we do it in Christ. We're to walk in the light of Christ, which means to put off the old man of sin and to put on the new man of righteousness and truth, because that's who we already are. We just need to begin walking that out. And that brings into mind our, our sanctification process, that uh, even as, as believers, we begin just where we left off as unsaved sinners. Now we're empowered by the Spirit to, to, to work out and to live in faith and in light and in truth and in purity and righteousness and truth. And these instructions of Paul's are all to believers in the church. That's who he's writing to. That's who he's writing to. So when he walk, talk, writes to us about correcting sin, repenting of sin, becoming more like Christ, he's not pointing to those people out there. He's pointing to us in here because the church is supposed to be growing in Christ and maturing in Christ so that we look more and more and more like Christ until the day when Christ returns and makes us like him. That's what's supposed to be happening. 
And so Paul's words to the church about how to walk are not wasted words. Remember back in chapter 4, where the believers in the church, new believers, Gentile believers who have come to saving faith in Christ, who used to live as thieves when they were outside of the church, are still living as thieves inside the church. And they have to be reminded, stop stealing, get a job, save your money, and use it to help others when they're in need, remember? Because there are actually sinners like that in the church who who need correction, who who need to walk out their new identity in Christ, and sometimes they just have to be told to because they don't know yet. That's what we call the disciple-making process. We're, We're being disciples. We're growing as disciples in Christ. You know, remember for a second back to our introduction to the book of Ephesians, if you can even remember back that far. The culture of Ephesus was one of complete idolatry. Complete idolatry. A pantheon of pagan gods and idols, and it was rampant with witchcraft. Witchcraft, of all things. There were practices, evil practices, dark practices to try to manipulate spiritual things in the real world. Witchcraft. The people lacked wisdom until they believed and heard the gospel. And even then, just like stealing, some in the church had foolish sins like witchcraft that they needed to repent of in order to completely submit themselves to Christ. Look at Acts chapter 19. Here's a story of this. There's an account of this. Paul has been ministering in Ephesus for some time. And in verse 11, we read, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. That's the power of God manifesting himself in miraculous ways so that people would believe the message attached to that. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus Christ over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So you have these Jewish exorcists, it's kind of like Jewish uh, uh, magicians, if you will, who are trying to appropriate the healing power of Christ that they have seen exhibited through Paul for themselves. And they're going to go start healing people on their own, but they're going to use the name of Jesus. There were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva, and they were doing this, verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all seven of them, overpowered all seven of them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Listen up, here's the church. Also, many of those, verse 18, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They, they had all their magic books. They had, they had all the books that taught them how to, how to perform dark magic, and they, they burned them in the sight of everybody, which made an impact because 
they counted the value of those books and they found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So there was a book burning, and this time it was a good thing. It was a book burning in Ephesus of all these magic books, witchcraft books by the Christians who used to use them, but now have gotten wise and practice Christianity. And the result was, verse 20, so that the word of the Lord, the gospel, continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so they grew and matured in the wisdom of God, and they walked in greater wisdom and brought the Spirit, and the Spirit brought greater increase and greater strength to the church. And Paul is calling us in what we're looking at this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, to walk in the wisdom of God that they were called to walk in, so that we too would be filled with the Spirit of God. Let me read this passage for you. It's chapter 5 in Ephesians, verse 15 to 21. This is the word of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, Paul begins by saying, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention to how you're walking. Be careful how you walk. We're supposed to pay attention to how we live our lives and then make adjustments as needed to be able to grow and mature in Christ. In the preceding paragraph, what we looked at last Sunday, Paul described Christians who continue to walk in immoral behavior as being asleep. Remember, they're asleep and they're in need of being woken up to walk in the light of Christ, to walk in purity. Here he contrasts being sleepy with being watchful. They were sleepy, don't do that. You be watchful, be awake, be alert. But do we really do that? Brothers and sisters, do we really watch carefully how we walk? Or do we settle for being just a little better than others rather than striving to put off the old man and put on the new man which is who we already are in Christ. Honest question for you to evaluate yourself. You see, we need to actually pay attention and evaluate and adjust. It's not just lip service. We need to be engaged in our sanctification. We need to want to live in a way that is consistent with Scripture and our new identity in Christ. If we're to mature to the stature of Christ We need to be active and energetic and engaged and paying attention to how we are doing so that we can take a step up gradually till we hit that point. And so, to walk in love is to live as Christ. Paul talks about walking in light. It's to live as Christ. And walking in wisdom is to live as Christ. Paul is telling us to give careful attention to our Christian walk so that we're not lulled into the immoral lifestyle of the culture around us. Because that's easy to do. All you have to do is not pay attention. Right? This call to walk as wise and not as unwise, it lines up 
with Paul's prayer for us back in chapter 1, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul has already been praying for us, and he has not been praying that we would have the wisdom of this world. Worldly wisdom is foolishness in God's eyes. God has promised to destroy the wisdom of this wise world. It was the wisdom of this world that led the rulers to crucify the Son of God. They thought that was a good idea. No, Paul is praying for the wisdom of God that guides his people to order their lives in ways that please God. That's what he's wooing us to do. That's what he's trying to get us to do. And Paul is commending the wisdom of God found in Proverbs. Where else would he go? Where else would he go in his Old Testament Hebrew Bible? Practical guidance and day-to-day living that is based on our humble submission to the one true God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture. Like I said, we have the wisdom of God here. We can access it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, 7. Paul is even writing in the the Jewish wisdom two-ways tradition. He says, don't do that, do this. Walk not as unwise, but as wise. Then Paul gives us two ways in which we can walk as wise. One, making the best use of time. And two, understanding what the will of the Lord is. So look at verse 16. Walk as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Here's one way that you and I can walk wisely. Use every hour in a productive way. That would be wise. And this is already a challenge. (laughs) We don't even have to delve any further. This is a challenge. Are you one of those people who is just naturally driven to be productive every waking hour of the day? I admire them, but I confess I am not one of them. I find myself too easily distracted. And I value leisure too highly. And I'm not alone in those things. Everyone has to fight distraction, and we are allowed some leisure time. But the context here is not productivity in general. It is taking every opportunity to live wisely, according to the wisdom of God. To walk as one who, through the Spirit, knows God. If your identity is in Christ, Christ is in you, you know God. Paul is building on the reality of chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I believe that walking in these good works is the one way that we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples to let others see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We all want to do that. We all want to do that, so why does it seem so hard? What would cause us to be less than diligent to make the most of every opportunity to display the wisdom of God in this world? Well, Paul has a reason, and he says it's because the days are evil. It's because the days are evil. We live in an age characterized by evil. We live in a world that opposes God and Christ and the church. 
In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul told us that the course of this present world follows the prince of the power of the air, who is the spirit that is now at work in all who disobey God. That's the playground we're playing on. These last days between Christ's first coming to seek and save the lost and his second coming to sit in judgment is characterized by widespread rebellion against the authority and reign of God. This is the reason why Paul later will tell us to to put on the whole armor of God so that we'll be able to stand firm. Listen to Jesus' words to his disciples just before his betrayal. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of birth pains. So so it'll be over then, Jesus? No. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So that's Christ saying we live in evil days, and describing them for us, and what to look out for. But Christ's mission for his church is to fill the world with good news that brings great joy. This gospel of the kingdom, in those evil days, when all those things are taking place and you are being handed over to your oppressors, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations of the wisdom of God to save. To be wise in this evil age means to do good aggressively and to share the gospel promiscuously. That's making good use of time. And then we can walk in wisdom by understanding what the will of the Lord is. Look at verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The second way to walk in wisdom is to avoid foolishness, is to know what the will of God is. The Bible consistently refers to the one who fears God and walks in his ways as wise, and the one who gets his own way and goes his own way and says there is no God is a fool. Proverbs tells us that fools are lazy, they have uncontrolled tongues, they lie, slander, and quarrel, they are quick-tempered, proud, hate knowledge, despise advice or correction, and are careless. That's the character of a man who walks as unwise. Don't be like him. Actually, Paul has already addressed many of those things in calling us to walk in love and to walk in light, hasn't he? Instead, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. And this is very similar to verse 10, where Paul told us to walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Know what the will of the Lord is. In the light, we seek God's will in terms of truth and purity. Here in wisdom, we seek God's will in terms of reason and understanding. 
This, just as I said last week, is part of our Christian adventure. Right? God has revealed his will to us, both in terms of morality, who we are to be in Christ, that's walking in light, and in terms of mission, what we're to do, how we're to walk wisely. But each of us is to use our own minds to think and reason and discern how to be good, what is good to do, what is right and true, in real time, in every circumstance of our real-time living. We have to apply it, which means we have to process the wisdom of God and look at a situation and then act accordingly so that we are the ones who are wise, so that we are the ones growing and exercising wisdom. And in this way, we not only apply wisdom, but we gain insight into the wisdom of God and the nature of his wisdom and help the church to grow in wisdom. Do you like that or not like that? I kind of feel like a lot of people don't like that. You really just kind of want a script with a checklist. Here's what's going to happen today. That person's going to cut you off in traffic. Here's what you're going to do. Grip your wheel just a little tighter and smile and go about your business. No additional gestures or words are necessary. And then you can follow those rules and you'll be fine. Instead, God just says, go be wise. Walk in wisdom, walk in light, walk in love. So that when that person cuts you off in traffic, for just a moment, you think. And you deal with your emotions. And you deal with what is objectively true. And you respond accordingly. Wisely. Lovingly. In truth and purity. You see, the what you want, the checklist so you don't have to think, is what makes you a robot. God doesn't make robots. God is in the process of making wise people who actually act wisely and behave wisely, who are actually becoming more and more like Christ. There's no shortcutting the process if you want to be like Christ. If you want to be like Christ. But each of us is to use our own minds and think and reason and discern how to do what is good, right, and true in real time, in every circumstance. And in this way, we grow together as a church in wisdom. Now, why should that matter to you? Why should it matter to you that the church grow and mature in this particular thing, wisdom? I'm talking to you, who according to the plan and purpose of God were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, who have been made alive in Christ, who have been brought near to God and one another in Christ. I'm talking to you who were being grown into a holy temple in the Lord and being built together into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Why should it matter to you that all of us individually and together grow and mature in the wisdom of God? I hope you're thinking. Because this mystery has now been revealed to you in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. And it is that it is the plan of God that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is God's call and purpose that the church 
would be wise and would display the very wisdom of God, not just to the people around us, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, in the spirit realm. That's God's plan. And if you are interested in God's plan and purpose for you and for your church, get on board with his call to live in wisdom. Proverbs 4 instructs us, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. (laughs) The Bible is yelling at you. Get wisdom. Get insight. You and I need the wisdom of God. Even if you think you don't, you know I do. And I can make that reciprocal. You and I need the wisdom of God, and it's found in his word, and he'll give it to you if you will ask for it. Do you remember what James tells us? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Do you see the wisdom of God in this wisdom of God? The promise of God to give you his wisdom follows the plan of God for you to walk in his wisdom to bring about the purpose of God, which is for his church to display his wisdom. Not only to the people around us here on earth, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm sorry, that boggles my mind. I have to say it over and over. That's real. What Paul has taught us, the mystery he's revealed to us about manifesting the wisdom of God is real. That's what's truly happening right now in Christ's churches around the globe. And if you're not excited about that, you need to take up Paul's charge to look more carefully at how you're walking. Because understanding the will of the Lord means doing the will of the Lord. This is pretty exciting stuff. This is a pretty high calling. This is far more than I ever imagined the church was called to do. And then the next way that Paul says to walk wisely is to walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Beginning in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The hallmark gift of the new covenant is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. God, God at the beginning of time, purposed to be with his people. His people sinned, and so he began a remedy, a system by which he could be with his people. And that remedy came to its fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose from the dead so that God could be in his people. You remember the disciples, they just wanted Jesus to stay here. If Jesus were here, we would say, Jesus, stay here. Jesus says, it's going to be better for me to go to heaven, and I'll send you the Spirit, and God will be in you. Better than just with you. The hallmark gift 
to us in the new covenant is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And here, in these verses, Paul contrasts being filled with the influence of the Holy Spirit with being filled with the wine and the influence by drunkenness. One is wise and one is foolish. Commentators point out that wine and drunkenness often accompanied the worship of pagan gods. So kind of back to that where they came out of in their culture. Certainly that was the case in Ephesus. Roman social gatherings were characterized by much wine. The Jewish philosopher Philo at the time was concerned enough to write a treatise entitled On Drunkenness, in which he argued for people to exercise greater discipline and to stop acting foolishly. It was so apparent to the civil society. And as in our culture today, there was a widespread problem of drunkenness in Ephesus, and it threatened the wisdom and the wise walking of the church. And so Paul here condemns drunkenness. And he's probably using the wisdom literature in Proverbs to do it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 warns, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You get that. In other words, drunkenness is a senseless waste. That's what that word debauched here means. It's wasteful. A drunken life is a waste of time. It's foolish and the opposite of a life that makes the best use of time, which is wise. So do not fill yourself with wine and walk or stumble or crawl under its influence, which is a waste of your life. Rather, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the contrast. The Holy Spirit, in this language of filling and fullness, are prominent in Ephesians. We've heard this language before, and the background of this is the temple, the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament, the temple imagery was filled with the glory of God. The temple of God was filled with the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his his gown filled the temple. The prophet Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel chapter 43, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gates facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple as the dwelling place of God's Spirit. But under the new covenant, the covenant we live in, believers have have replaced the physical temple as the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Paul tells the Corinthians Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And right here in Ephesians, earlier in chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When we come to saving faith in Christ, he gives us each the Holy Spirit such that we are indwelled by God. So Paul is not telling these believers to Receive the Holy Spirit. They already have. They've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of their inheritance until they take possession of it. 
He told us that in chapter 1. Rather, Paul is telling them to do what to do in order to walk wisely with the Spirit. He's telling us to yield to the Spirit and cooperate with the Spirit who wants to fill us with increasing measure. Think about this. Part of the mystery of God that Paul has revealed and prayed for is that we would be filled. In chapter 1, verse 23, God's plan for his church to be Christ's body so that the church is, quote, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. We've already read in chapter 2 that we, the church, are the household of God, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. In chapter 3, Paul prayed that according to the riches of his glory, that God may grant us to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner person so that Christ may dwell in our hearts and that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We already have the Spirit, but to be filled with the Spirit, to experience the fullness of God in Christ in the church, we need to walk wisely in the Spirit. And Paul highlights three ways we should walk wisely with the Spirit. One, in joyfulness. Two, in thankfulness. And three, in humble submission. He says, walk walk wisely in these ways, and you will be filled with the Spirit. Now remember, Remember Paul's comparison and contrast. The fool fills himself with wine that renders him drunk, which is a waste, but the wise man is filled by the Spirit and walks in joyful living, thankful living, humble submission to Christ, and walking in these ways brings greater filling by the Spirit. Again at verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Paul is describing believers gathering to worship God. And he's highlighting our praising God through singing. Joyful, heartfelt singing that is described as melody making to the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. What a lovely picture. Melody making with our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in our hearts, where the Spirit dwells, in the inner man, such that we would know Christ. This makes total sense. Paul instructs the church to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. How many have heard this verse before? Remember the 1990s? If you were in church in the 1990s, small digression, you just, you just have to remember what came to be known as the worship wars. Uh, because modern composers were writing songs to be sung in churches called praise choruses. So instead of hymns, where you have long verses of wonderful truths that you would sing one time each, there was basically one verse you'd sing 20 times, over and over and over and over and over again. Pretty easy to write, uh, but they had modern music. So, so there's a new thing that goes with the praise chorus, and it's the praise team, which really means a band. So there were a lot of things going on in the 90s related to music and worship in the church. In fact, that's, where, that's really where we started calling the singing part of the service worship. And after we worship... Well, then we'll hear a message, right? Worship became the music instead of the whole enchilada, which is what it is. You're here inside a whole Sunday morning worship enchilada from the beginning through the preaching to the end, okay? All of that's going on. And I remember these verses being brought out and taught to say that spiritual songs is praise courses. I mean, we will, we will apply things the way we will. 
It's very funny and interesting how we do that. What we do know is that psalms are identifiable. They're from the book of Psalms. There are 150 of them. Hymns are poems that ascribe praise to Jesus, and then they're set to music. Uh, They're written by lots of people. They're written by by people back in Paul's day. Sometimes they're referred to in the scriptures. They're written by Charles Wesley and Augustus Toplady, the Gettys and Townends. They write hymns. And spiritual songs, in my in my study, in my best understanding, are simply misunderstood. The most helpful Greek scholarship I found reads the noun songs as a general term and the adjective spiritual describing all three nouns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's not meant to be just tied to the word songs. So all of them, songs, hymns, and psalms, hymns, and songs are to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not inerrant like scripture, although the psalms are, but that writers, like Charles Wesley or the Gettys, are, are inspired. We might say lowercase i inspired instead of capital I inspired. They're inspired by the truth of Scripture and moved to express praise from their hearts in lyrics. So that the Spirit is appropriately engaged in our gathered worship through singing when we, when we gather in all kinds of music. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because it, it would have been probably appropriate in the church in Ephesus to say that you've got all these people coming into the church and the Jews were singing psalms and the Gentiles were singing hymns and Paul is saying, use it all. (laughs) Use it all. If it's spiritual, if it's inspired by the Spirit and the Word of God, use it all. Sing it all and do so joyfully from your heart. And while the target of our praise is the Lord Jesus Christ, we hear one another sing. We experienced that this morning. And our hearts are encouraged and strengthened when we hear everyone gathered together to sing. Wasn't that your experience in the gathered worship this morning? I regularly hear people say, I regularly hear people say, you know, I really didn't want to come to church today. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, and then they say, but I'm so glad I did. Why? Because gathering to worship is walking wisely. And it brings the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why when you you don't want to come to church, but you come anyway. Because you know it's the wise thing to do. Even if you come grudgingly, you leave joyfully and thankfully. By the way, you would be wise right now to make the permanent decision to gather every Sunday morning to worship at Christ Fellowship Church, rather than making that decision each individual Sunday morning as you wake up. I learned this myself. I gained wisdom myself. I gained insights myself. When it was time to go to Sunday worship or Wednesday prayer or home fellowship or men's breakfast, I would say to myself, you know, I'm tired. I'm tired. And I did that for a while. And then one day I decided to pay close attention to see how I was walking. And I thought about and reasoned about my being tired. And here's what I figured out. This is what I realized. I wasn't really tired. I was empty. I had diagnosed it as being tired But what I really was, was empty. When's the last time you read your Bible? 
When's the last time you genuinely prayed to the Father? When's the last time you really went and engaged with the people of God? That's why you're glad to come to church. Even when at first you don't want to. Because when you walk wisely, when you gather with God's people to sing praises from your heart to Jesus, you're being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is simply pointing to. This isn't mystical in some way. Paul is simply pointing to the connection between wisely walking to worship to the worship gathering and being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's just connecting the two. It's not hard to understand because you've already experienced it. You've already had one of those mornings. Because God meets us and strengthens us by his Spirit when we gather to praise him. Fact. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is consistent on this. That always giving thanks to God for all things should be the defining characteristic of all Christians, including us. Paul has told us already in chapter 5 verse 4 that the effective way, remember this was just last Sunday, the effective way to avoid sexual immorality Impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and vulgar language, all of that, the way, to, the way to avoid all of that effectively is to be thankful. If you would be thankful for the thing God has done, you will, you will not do these things. And so give God thanks for his great plan of salvation that Paul has revealed to us, the mystery revealed to us in chapters 1 to 3. Be thankful that you've been made alive in Christ. Be thankful that you've been brought near to one another and Christ. Be thankful that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And all of this, Paul says, repeatedly is to, pray, is to the praise of God and to the glory of God. That's what it's here for. That's what we're here for. You know this by experience too. We walk wisely when we walk in thankfulness to God. Always and for all things. And when we do, we experience the right and gracious filling of the Holy Spirit. Joyfulness, thankfulness, and Paul adds one more way to walk wisely that brings this filling of the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, submitting. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse is so often misunderstood. And the common misunderstanding of this verse has caused so many Christians to walk unwisely. Let's remember our context. Remember what brought us to this point. Our context is that we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the Lord. Chapter 4. So we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. Peace. And to do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience and forbearance. That attitude is in place when we read verse 20, 21. And we were warned not to grieve the Spirit, but to walk in wisdom, so to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in a few verses how to be filled with the Spirit by walking in joy and thankfulness of heart. But what Paul's going to do next, what we're going to delve into next Sunday, <coughs> excuse me, what Paul is going to use, uh, what Paul described in just a few Sentences, he's going to use paragraphs 
He's going to take paragraphs to tell us how to be filled with the Spirit by walking in humble submission in marriage and family in the church. So, so this is going to expand next week, this idea of submitting out of reverence to Christ. Verse 21 is not a standalone verse. It does not teach the popular concept of mutual submission. Let me just say it again, and if you don't believe that, at least consider what I have to say. Let me appeal to you to consider what I'm saying to you this morning. It does not teach the popular concept of mutual submission. The Apostle Paul has no idea what our modern concept of mutual submission even means. Because it's not possible. It's impossible for two people to submit fully to one another. It just doesn't work. The word can't mean that. I, I vaguely have a, a picture of a skit uh, in my mind from the Carol Burnett show. If you don't know what that is, that's fine, you're blessed. But if you do, you know what I'm talking about. So there's you know, these comedians on stage, and there are two people, and they're, and they're trying to bow to one another. To, to, in effect, picture mutual submission. And so they bow to one another. Oh, they hit heads. Oh, everybody laughs. So they're going to bow to one another, but they hit heads. Why? Because you can't bow to one another. You can't mutually submit to one another in authority. It doesn't work. We can't bow to one another's authority at the same time. This word submit, and by the way, it means stay submitted, it's a military term. Paul's using a military term. And everywhere this word is used in Scripture, it always means complete submission to a rightful authority. Can you imagine being in an army where the privates submit to the generals and the generals submit to the privates? The sharpshooter submits to the mess hall cook? And the attack helicopter pilot submits to the supply clerk? Oh, you may not notice too many problems until you're attacked. Then who are you going to listen to? Who's in charge? How's this thing going to hold together? How does the general, who's responsible for defending the nation, submit to the private who prefers not to charge? He'd rather go to the mess hall. Even do push-ups afterwards if you want him to. And why would the private charge the enemy if, enemy if he believes that the general doesn't really have actual authority over him? You see, we, we always get... In our modern-day thinking and culture, these two things exactly backwards. In our fallen world, we take notice, wide-eyed notice, of claims to authority first. Because we know that authority is often misused. And we tend to ignore responsibility when it's assigned, because responsibility demands accountability. But Christ and the Word of God always assigns responsibility first. Then, and only then, does the person who is responsible receive the commensurate authority to carry out what he's responsible for. So in the context of unity and peace and humility, and gentleness which should characterize us, Christ has wisely brought order 
to our lives. He has wisely brought order to marriage such that the husband is responsible for his wife's flourishing and the wife is to submit to his rightful authority to do so. And Christ has wisely brought order to the family such that parents, ultimately the father, are responsible for their children's behavior. And children are to submit to their parents' rightful authority. Verse 21 is a transition verse. In fact, if you were to look at this in the NIV, see, I'm looking at the ESV. Verse 21 is is up with the paragraph before it, what we've just been reading. If you're looking at the NIV, it's not. It's down with the paragraph below it, where these household instructions begin. It's pointing ahead as a transition verse to what Paul's going to say next. So Paul gets to to his last point in walking in the Spirit. And he says, walk in submission. And this is that that one little verse is going to catapult us into the next several paragraphs where he's going to unpack that. What Paul is going to say next. It serves as a general heading about submission followed by three specific contexts in which we're all to submit. And we'll look at those in greater detail next week in the weeks ahead for greater understanding so that, remember where this comes from, so that we can walk in Christ's wisdom and be filled with his spirit. What I hope you will seriously consider is that it is intellectually dishonest to try to make the word submission mean anything other than complete submission to the rightful authority of Christ. His authority, his right to order marriage, to order family, to order the church as he wills. That is his prerogative. But let me add, and let me finish with this idea. At the same time, this verse does carry forward and bear the weight of the idea of not mutual submission, mutual deference. Mutual deference. We would all agree with that. Paul's teaching is permeated with mutual deference. Yes, in marriage, husbands and wives do mutually defer to one another without demanding their own way every time. Yes, in families, parents can wisely defer some things to children without endorsing foolishness and still being wise. Mutual deference is often what we're thinking of, and that's right and good. Walking wisely in submission to one another, rightly understood, brings joy and thanksgiving and the Spirit's filling. And before we jump ahead to all of that, which begins next week, there is one more word here about walking wisely in verse 21. And it's the word reverence. Living in reverence to Christ. This application of mutual deference, of, of, of deferring to one another, happily, to willing to release on our preferences so that others might exercise theirs. This is how we walk together in the love that Christ has given us. This is how we walk together in the light that Christ has shined upon us. And this is how we walk out of reverence for Christ. Paul could have just said obedience. It's a good word. It's a good word for us Christians. He could have just said obedience, but here he chose to say reverence. You see, reverence has a wisdom component to it. And Paul's telling us to walk in wisdom. 
Reverence has a wisdom component. In reverence, we not only obey Christ, but we honor and respect Christ, the one who's wiser than us. In reverence, we humbly submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ in a way that venerates Christ as the wise one. See, living out of reverence for Christ requires that we pay attention to how we live. That we take every opportunity to do good works in these evil days. And share the gospel, the wise words that lead to salvation. If you haven't heard the wise words that lead to salvation, hear them this morning. Dear friend, you're a sinner. And God's just judgment on your sin is death. But if you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would believe who he is, that he is the very son of God, sent to save sinners, if you would believe what he has accomplished, that on the cross he died a sacrificial death, he sacrificed him in our place so that the punishment for God's, our, for God's punishment on our sin was taken care of by Christ. And that because he never sinned, but paid for our sin, he rose from the dead because death had no grip on him. And so he gives life. That's the, that's the equation. Christ died for our sin equals us having life if we would but believe in him. The words that lead to salvation. They're words that lead to worshiping God with joy and thanksgiving. And in all these ways, we find ourselves being filled by the Spirit. You've experienced it. This is the plan of God for his church. Brothers and sisters, this is the plan of God for his church. That we would display his manifold witness to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we bow before your name and acknowledge that you are the wise one and that it was wise for you to send Christ as a sacrifice for our sin to accomplish the redemption that would make us to the glory of your inheritance. We would never have thought such a thing. And so, Father, we thank you that you've been gracious to us in this way that you're willing to save sinners and that Christ did the work that we could not do, that we might have life. And so now we pray, Father, that you would help us to be wise and to walk accordingly and to do this for the praise of your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.